you, Luke. Praise team. Open your Bibles if you have them to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we starting in verse 13, going through verse 16 this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Well, if you want to waste tons of time on the internet, um, I have a perfect solution for you. Just go to YouTube and type in lights as seen from the International Space Station. I guarantee you this is a surefire way to waste tons of time on the internet. There's these time-lapse videos as the International Space Station passes over the Earth in low orbit, and you can see down below all of the skies and weather patterns and various things that are on display down below. You can see little storms as they pass over areas of land. You can see lightning flashes all around and everything like that. It's really, really fascinating. One of the, the cooler things is when the, the International Space Station passes into the northern hemisphere, you see the aurora borealis from above. You see the, the northern lights as it passes over. And it's really amazing to see all this spectacular display of, of God's creation all at one time. But one of the things that is most mesmerizing to me is the lights of the cities around the world. Sometimes you can see the, the dry land during the day as it passes over, and then as the earth rotates or as the space station moves, you get this transition into night where all the, the lights of the cities begin to come on and glow against the, the darkness of the land around them. And as the camera passes over the land, you see like those little individual lights that are out in the country that are just probably a small village of, of people out in the middle of, of seemingly nowhere in the remote parts. But then as you get closer to like the bigger cities, you don't see individual lights anymore. You see just one massive light right in the middle of these population centers. You can't distinguish all the individual lights anymore as it passes over places like Paris and Rome and, and New York City and Tuscaloosa. All those individual lights just become this massive glow in these population centers that are visible from space. This morning, Jesus is going to charge citizens of the kingdom to be salt and light in the world around them. Now last week, we were brought to the close of the Beatitudes, where Jesus is, is blessing those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And he explains to them that those that are following him should expect to be persecuted. You should expect persecution. And, and it should raise in our minds a question. Now wait a second, Jesus. You said that we're to expect persecution. How am I, as a Christian, supposed to interact with this world around me? Where I'm supposed to go into this world expecting to be persecuted. How, how, do, I, how do I interact with this world that you're describing? This is the question that we're taking up this morning. How do we interact with the world around us? This question is not a comfortable one. I should say the answer to this question is not a comfortable one. It's a challenging one. It's a gut-wrenching 
one. It requires anyone that would call themselves a believer in Jesus to take a leap of faith. Let's look at our text this morning in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall it how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." Uh, if you th- think about our text this morning, it's, really, it's closely related to the close of the Beatitudes. Now, you can imagine how one would look at the Beatitudes, particularly the last Beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and think to themselves, well, well, then let's just retreat up onto a mountain somewhere inside of a, a gated community with other like-minded believers where we can practice these habits that are identified in the Beatitudes, where we can put them into practice, and we won't be persecuted for them. In fact, we'll be encouraged to practice them. Maybe that's what we should do. Well, it's patently obvious in our text this morning that Jesus just dismisses that idea out of hand. Instead, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others. In other words, you can't merely practice or embody the characteristics of the Beatitudes in the privacy of your own home or in the confines of your own church family. It's impossible to actually do that. You are salt to the saltless. You are a light to the dark world. You can never fulfill the purpose for which God has called you if the only people that can testify to your Christian character are those inside your church family. It's impossible. The citizens of the kingdom, instead, are to be on display for the world around them. In this passage, verse 13 is parallel to verses 14 and 15. And in both of them, Jesus uses an analogy of something that they would understand. Salt in verse 13 and light in verses 14 and 15 and even in a little bit in 16. But both of them serve to make virtually the same point. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven are to be distinct from the world around them. They're to be distinct from the world around them. And in this passage, I think, identifies three primary ways in which we are to be distinct. First, we are distinct from the world in our morals. We are distinct from the world in our morals. Salt had many uses in Jesus' day, as it does in ours. But one of its many uses was for seasoning food, just like what we use it for, just to season food. We see uh, salt actually used in this way 
as a description of Christian character by Paul in Colossians. We covered it a couple of months ago, but he says in Colossians 4, 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So, so Paul's depicting our speech here as, as like a dish in the best restaurant. It leaves the hearer wanting more because it's, it's seasoned with the graciousness and the mercy and the love of God. The kind of graciousness that people can't help but want more of. In a similar way, Jesus is, is highlighting the distinctiveness of our attitudes, of our deeds, of our, our code of conduct, of our morals as kingdom citizens. It's it's different from the rest of society. It stands out. It has a distinct flavor to it. It causes people to question, why are you the way that you are? You know people that fit this bill. People that are warm, that are hospitable, that are just godly people. And, and, and their personalities are infectious. And you don't like them because they flatter you or because they're particularly funny, or because they're particularly entertaining. But for some reason, when you talk to them, you feel like you're growing closer to the Lord when you hear from them. And it seems like every time you talk with them, you don't want the conversation to end. This is the idea presented here. It's, it's acts that are winsome. To people. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that he didn't leave us here in order that we would just blend in with society. That's what Jesus means in the following part of the verse when he says, But if the salt has lost its taste, how can it be salty again? That's how it's translated there in the ESV. It's lost its taste, but it's a strange word that he uses there. It actually means become foolish. It's just a generic term that applies to anything that is a loss, its original purpose and meaning. So in our context here, the salt has lost its saltiness. It has lost its distinction from the meat. When you taste the meat, you don't taste the salt, you just taste the meat. If there was salt there, it just became part of it. And you can't really tell that it's any different from the meat. That's one thing to say that we shouldn't just blend into society. But it's a lot harder when we actually put it into practice. If someone were to be following you or your family around for, let's say, a month, a journalist, and they were just going to write a report of everything that they saw in you and your family, they're going to follow you around for a month, what would be the biggest difference they would see in your family's life than the life of an average, good-moraled pagan. I'm not talking about Archie Bunker, all right? It's easy when we look at Archie Bunker, we can say, hey, I'm better than that guy. I mean, I have many people beat, but I got, I got him beat. I'm not talking about Archie Bunker. I'm talking about sweet family, otherwise Good people, what we traditionally refer to as salt of the earth, just not Christian. What would be the difference in your life and theirs? Now, I can tell you on average, 
I don't know about every single person in this congregation, but I can tell you on average what they would find in the lives of many Christian households is that Christians are just as dominated by their kids' schedule. They're just as workaholics and into their job. They're just as addicted to TV and media as non-Christians. And if we're just to talk about overall media consumption in general, how much of our time is consumed with watching TV, our Netflix cues, and social media. That's not even to mention what kind of content we're consuming when we watch those things, but just the sheer amount of volume with which we let them fill our minds. Now look, I'm not, I'm not saying that TV and movies and things like that are of the devil. All right? I'm not saying that, nor am I saying that Christians shouldn't do them at all. What I am saying is that there are only so many hours in a day. And so I'm simply asking, how much of our time is spent filling our minds with these kinds of things? Versus how much of our time is spent filling our minds with the things of God so that we can actually be salt of the earth. If someone were to follow the average Christian around for a week, I think they would probably find that most Christians spend just as much time reading their Bibles as non-Christians do. That is to say, none. Listen, if, the, if in the confines of your own home, there is no difference between your life and the life of a pagan. We're not talking about in the world. We're talking about in the confines of your own home. There's presumably not a lot of persecution that goes on there. If within the confines of your own home, there is no difference between your life and the life of an otherwise pretty moral pagan, there's zero chance you're being salt of the earth. There's zero chance. You're just pretending. Look, we don't need any more Mrs. Dash Christianity. We don't. It's decent. Some people need it. I need Mrs. Dash, but let's be honest, it's not salt. We don't need any more of that kind of Christianity. It's not time to shrink back and blend in with the culture so that we can appear more relevant or so that we can talk about things that people understand, so that we can reference shows that people understand and that people are watching or we can be in the loop. Now is not the time to shrink back so that we can blend in. Now is the time to push further into the things of God, filling our minds up with things that will stir our heart's affections towards the Lord. towards the God that we worship so that we can actually be salt and light in Tuscaloosa and in the world around us. We're to be distinct in our morals. Second, we are distinct from the world in our message. The second image that Jesus 
uses is here in verses 14 and 15. And as I said, it's parallel to the first image. He uses light here. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, there's not much question as to what Jesus means when he says you're a city on a hill, you're the light of the world. He goes on at the end, in verse 16 to actually tell us what he means. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see what? Your good works. So it's obvious that salt and light are both used here to illustrate the good works that we do. The actions that we perform in the community around us. However, they are also coming at this differently. They are complementary purposes. Salt, as I said, is acting in some sense as a, a, a distinct moral seasoning in the world around us. There's a distinct taste distinguishing ourselves from the rest of culture. And light has those properties as well. It distinguishes that community from the darkness around it. But light also has another purpose in Scripture that we see so frequently. It beckons people to come out of the darkness and into the light. In other words, it's like using our good works in such a way that we might win an audience to testify to the hope that is within us. In other words, the message of the gospel is always accompanying the impeccable character of the citizens of God's kingdom. So light stands out, but it also beckons people to come to it. So the picture that we get of citizens of the kingdom of heaven is not simply one whose hands and feet are always going about doing good works. It's one where the tongue is also quick to tell the message of the gospel, the reason why we do the things that we do. How else are people going to know for what reason you do these things unless your mouth is ready at the drop of a hat to tell them exactly why you do these kinds of things. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 3.15, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now he's, he's speaking there of Christians that are in the midst of persecution similar to what Jesus is speaking about in our text. He's saying that not only should your actions be impeccable, but they should be met with the readiness to share the gospel always on the tip of your tongue. In other words, evangelism is one of those good works that we should always be about. There is no other way that people can know the reason for the hope that is within you other than you tell them. This is not a time to shrink back. There is often a mentality when it comes to Christian witness that we should first apologize for the clear teaching of Scripture because it's unpopular in the culture around us. Well, you're a Christian, so you believe abortion is a sin? Yes. I also believe that God's forgiveness is extended to all, regardless of past sin, only through Jesus Christ. And if you confess your sin, 
you profess him as Lord, if you confess your sin to you, to him, he is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's very simple. But there's a feeling that we need to equivocate because we're afraid as to how the message will be received by its hearers. Friends, since when do hearers get a say in the message? We don't do this in any other field. If the audience was telling the actors how to say their lines, they wouldn't be the audience, they would be the director. Now, that doesn't mean that I have to be a jerk. It doesn't mean that I'm not compassionate. It doesn't mean that I, can't, that I can just ignore people's pain or just stomp on it and that I can't address it. Of course I can. But it does mean that I speak the truth in love. And while it's possible to speak the truth and not do it in love, Like when somebody asks you, these pants make me look fat. Sometimes you can't just say yes, all right? I like those pants so much better. Right? It's still true, but it's in love. We can speak the truth in love. We don't have to be a jerk. While it's possible to speak the truth and not do it in love, it is impossible to love and not speak the truth. You cannot love and not speak the truth. You're just lying. There's a fear, and I can, I can sense it, that if we, if we double down on the truth, then we won't have an audience. No, brothers and sisters. If we equivocate on the truth, we won't be salt and light. We're not called to have a big audience. We're not called to control our audience size. We're called to be salt and light. And there are people in this very city that are constantly being sold a bill of goods by the culture around them. The homosexual community has been told, if you just get married, you'll have exactly what your grandparents have. Which is very crazy because 20 years ago they were telling straight couples that you don't have to get married to have what your grandparents had. They're being sold a bill of goods. And the question is, when that day comes and that bill of goods fails them, where are they going to turn? Some of them will continue to pursue lie after lie after lie. Some of them will turn to the light if they can find it and if they can hear it. And unless we're here continually proclaiming the truth and identifying sin for them, unless we continue to communicate what sin is now, how can we ever tell them how they can be forgiven of it? That's the goal, is it not? That's the goal. It's not to just beat people over the head with sin. It's to tell them how they can recognize it and how they can be forgiven of it. 
But if we lose that, it's at that point that we've lost all saltiness. And the one that walks amongst the lampstands has every right to snuff our light out. And he will. Last, we're distinct from the world in our mission. We are distinct from the world in our mission. At the very end of verse 16, we get to the goal of this all. It begins with the word, so that. You'll see it there in verse 16. Jesus says, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So what is the goal? That they would see your good works and give glory to, your, to the God who is in heaven. What is it? That they would worship the God in heaven. What's the goal? Just so I'm clear. Just so I make sure I'm clear here. What is the goal? What's the goal of, the, of our witness? So that they would give glory to God in heaven. What is it? So that they would worship God. What is our goal as a church? Worship God. And to bring others into that worship. It's very clear. It's abundantly clear in the scriptures. Our mission as a church is to worship God and to bring others into that worship. That is our goal. To worship God and to bring others into that worship. I cannot say it any better than John Piper does in Let the Nations Be Glad. It's how he opens the book. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. He doesn't say missions isn't important. He says missions serves the greater purpose of the church, which is to worship God. That's exactly right. The, church, the saltiness of the church is tasted when it's been cooked in the white-hot fire of the worship of God. The saltiness of the church is tasted when it has been cooked in the white-hot fires of the worship of God. Now think of how, what happens to you as a Christian when you sing songs of adoration to God. Think about what happens when you've been confronted with your own sins and you've been brought to repentance through His Word. That good kind of pain. You know what I'm talking about? Like working out? Where you leave and you go, I know that I've been confronted with sin that I didn't even really know was there, but I like that. That's good. And I, I know that I found forgiveness there. Think about how you take that with you throughout your day, not knowing that not only have you, have you praised God, but that you've also been confronted by sin. You don't think there are people in the world around you that are starving for that? There absolutely are. Some of them are going to churches right now 
looking for it. And we can easily get confused on what our mission is. We can think it's about a certain style of music, a certain form of preaching, maybe a certain dress code. And we can think we've really done something. The more people that we pack in here, we've got tons of people in here. Man, it just, it just feels so great. Look at, look at all the things that we've accomplished. We've really reached our goal. I can't tell you how many pastors I've sat around in a circle and heard the same things over and over. Well, his, his church, he's got lots of people in there. He's packing them in left and right, so he must be doing something right. Could be growth, or it might be swelling. You see the same result either way changing shoe sizes. Your effectiveness as salt isn't measured by the sheer number of people you attract, it's measured in the genuineness of the worship that goes on there. There is something that actually happens here on Sunday mornings. There's something that actually takes place in this room on Sunday mornings. For a long time, pastors and teachers and people in church, and you'll still hear it to this day, emphasize this idea that that worship is really what happens in your life. It's not what happens for the two hours, one or two hours on, on Sunday. It's what happens during the week in your life. And while that's partially true, it also makes it sound like there's absolutely no reason to be here on Sunday morning. But really, there is something that happens on Sunday mornings in here and all over the world. The Christian church gathers together. And as best as possible, we attempt to pattern our worship after the worship that goes on around the throne of God in heaven in God's kingdom in heaven. That's the reason that adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication is slowly making its way into our worship services here because we see in Scripture this pattern of these things reemerging over and over and over again when people worship God. We're patterning our worship service here after the worship service that we see in Scripture we're hopefully worshiping like they do in heaven around God's throne. I want to do just a brief illustration of this. Think with me. Imagine all of us were uprooted from here and we were transplanted and placed in Siberia. Right out in the middle of just nothing. Cold and dreary, the deepest, darkest place in Russia. The place that they actually send people to to die. Let's pretend we've all been transplanted from here and we've been placed there in some sort of military outpost. And all we're surrounded by all day, every day is just nothing but people from a foreign country speaking a foreign language that we don't understand. And we're forced to sit here in this outpost keeping watch. Monday through Saturday is our work week. Sunday is our only off day. Let's pretend we've been there for years at this point. Our Mondays probably look really similar coming off of an off day. We're all smiling because we're trying to make the best of it, to be honest with you. We're just trying to grin and bear it. 
And all we hear is the Russian language all day long. That's all we hear. Continually, like a drumbeat. Tuesday, some reality starts to set in. Our smiles start to droop just a little bit. And still, all day long, all we hear is the Russian language. That's it. Wednesday, a little more reality. Our faces begin to droop just a little bit more. And still, all we're hearing is the Russian language. We're starting to think about things in Russian. Think about things the way the Russians think about them. We're starting to dream in Russian. By the time Saturday comes around, we're crying because we miss home so much. And because there's something soothing and appealing about hearing somebody speak in your own native tongue. But then on Sunday morning, before the sun even rises, when it's incredibly dark, in the wee hours of the morning, one of our fellow Americans builds a small campfire in the woods. And he invites several of us to come around. And so we gather around this campfire and the sound of the crackle of the logs is beginning to appeal to us and sort of lift our spirits the way only campfires can. You know what I'm talking about when you're around a campfire. That feeling of just, I love this. I don't even know why, but I just, I love this. And my spirits are beginning to be lifted. You can see people perk up just a little bit. The English language is beginning to be spoken around the campfire. And everybody's starting to look at each other like, you know... We can make it another week. I think we can do it. But then, but then, something really great happens. One of our people in this circle reaches in his coat and he pulls out this radio. And he opens up the antenna and he extends it all the way up as high as it will possibly go. And he clicks it on. And he, he turns the dial and you can hear, you know, that he's looking for the signal. And finally, it gets a little bit clearer, and you can hear America's Top 40 Countdown with Casey Casey. And you just sit and listen to all 40 songs, songs you may not have even listened to when you were back in America, but now that you're here and you've been so far away from that language, it's just a reminder of home. But then something even greater happens. Somebody's been holding out on us. Somebody reaches in their pocket. They pull out one of those long sleeves of Reese's peanut butter cups. And you're thinking, oh man, how I love me some I haven't seen one of these in years. And they open it up and all of them are there. They got all, whatever, 19 of them, however many there are. They start breaking them up in crumbles and they start passing them around the group. And everybody starts eating one a little bit at a time, just the little morsels that they can get. And it's as if for that brief little moment, all of us are transported back home. And we're closing our eyes and we're remembering what it's like. Feel like we're in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. We're surrounded by friends and family members. We're hearing people speak in our native tongue tasting the food that we used to eat, hearing the songs that we used to sing. Welcome to the worship 
in a Christian church. Where we gather to hear the music of the homeland. As staticky as it is, we can hear it. We hear the words of God read to us, preached to us. As hazy and as veiled as they are, I still recognize that it's true. We eat the bread and we drink from the cup as a reminder of what it was like to eat there and what it will be like when we return. But there are people that we don't know about that speak our native language that we have no idea they even exist right now. That belong to this homeland. And they walk by. And they hear in the distance, staticky though it may be, Casey Kasem. That's Casey Kasem. What do they do? They turn to it. And off in the distance, they see a campfire. We hear Jesus and John say, My sheep hear my voice. And they run to it. With everything that they have, they run to it. And all of a sudden, this little campfire with this small radio and these little sleeve of treats has become a city on a hill, a beacon of light that beckons all citizens of the kingdom of heaven to come to it. See, it baffles me when I hear Christians complain about the quality of this or of that in a biblical worship service. It's like walking away from the campfire complaining that all you got was a few morsels of a peanut butter cup. Friends, we all only got morsels. That's all we've got. That's all I've got. That's all Luke's got. That's all anybody's got up here. All we have is morsels. That's it. And there's some people that are really fascinated with themselves And they'll try to tell you that they've got more than morsels, but they don't. All they've got are morsels. But the difference in kingdom citizens versus people that are just here out of curiosity and want to complain, the citizens are grateful for even the morsel of the homeland. The spectators were just curious onlookers who heard that there was chocolate. And they'll leave because they think they have better chocolate elsewhere. Then there's others who claim to be a part of this community, but then randomly just don't show up on a Sunday. In light of the picture that I've just laid out for you, how does that make sense? How can we treat the gathering together of the saints in the midst of a dark land? How can we continue to treat that as anything other than a safe haven? 
something that I crave every single day. It's like they're coming to me and saying, hey, the Russians are going out to eat after work, and I think I'm just going to go join them. Sorry, but I can catch up with them on Monday. It's the only time in the week that I have to be with brothers and sisters who understand the language and who sing with me. I don't have that any other time. But now think about this for a second. If our worship here is patterned after the worship in heaven, what are our lives here to be patterned after? The lives in the kingdom of heaven. How do we live we live as though we would live in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is even going to pray for it in the next chapter. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on, come on, as it is in heaven. Our lives should be patterned after the same way of living that we would live in the kingdom of heaven. This, mean, this is what it means to be salt and light. It's people who pattern their lives and their worship by what it is to live in the kingdom of God. That's what it means. And there are other expats who are around, who live and who walk around your neighborhoods, and in your workplaces. And the more you pattern your life after your life in the kingdom of heaven, the more they will find you. That's what it means to be salt and light in a dark world. Some of you may be thinking, well, look, I've been a scoundrel for so long. I know I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, but people know me as something totally different. I've lost my witness. I've blown it. I can't be salt and light around people that really know me anymore. No, see, friend, you, you have it wrong. Remember how Jesus said you get into the kingdom of heaven? Do you remember what he said in, in Matthew 4, 17? He said, repent. That's what he said. He said, repent. Repentance will mean for you that you confess your sins to God, but then you own up to your sins in front of the people that you've sinned against or the people that you've sinned in front of. And see, when you do this, you're not admitting defeat. You're testifying to the fact that you've really experienced the weight of the kingdom of God. You are being salt and light. You're validating the fact that you've encountered the God of the universe and you're responding the way everyone in Scripture responds when they encounter the God of the universe. Think about Isaiah 6. Think about Revelation 1. Every time they come in contact with the God of the universe, what happens? They freeze they fall on the floor. They confess sin. They think, oh my goodness, I wasn't ready for this. You're telling people, I'm taking off my shoes because the ground I'm standing on is holy. And they're seeing that you have clearly encountered something they don't have. You might be thinking, I've blown it in front of my kids. I haven't lived like I was a citizen of God's kingdom. Friend, repent 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Tell them and tell God. You might be thinking, my coworkers have seen an ugly side of me. And when they tell vulgar jokes, I'm right there in the middle of it. I'm right there laughing. And sometimes I even tell them myself, friend, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Tell them your sin and tell God. You might be thinking, I've been looking at things that I shouldn't look at. I've been looking at images on the internet. And no one knows about it. No one knows who I really am in secret. I can't be salt and light. People will know that I'm just a fraud. I feel like it every single day. Friend, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn to those that love you, that are around you. Tell them and tell God. Are you understanding what we're getting at? We've all blown it. Every single one of us have. I don't care whether you're Christian or whether you're currently an unbeliever. Every single one of us has blown it. And Jesus is very clear. Repentance is the key to the kingdom of heaven. No one makes it in without repentance. Repent of your sin and find forgiveness in Christ alone. We'll continue to make a mess of our lives by pursuing sin over and over again. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is supposed to bring you to tears. It's supposed to break the shackles of self-righteousness. That's the reason he preached it. We're barely into the sermon as it is. His sermon, not mine. We're well into mine. We're barely into his sermon as it is. The climb only gets steeper from here on out. No one makes it out of the Sermon on the Mount without either coming to realize who they are and repenting of their sin or completely lying to themselves. There's only two choices. You make it. But see, Jesus doesn't want to just break us down. He wants to give us the legs to climb. And if you're feeling like I'm a sinner and rejoice because he only reveals sin to those he loves. He only corrects those he loves. So rejoice. He wants to give you the legs to pursue righteousness. By setting before you what righteousness actually looks like. And then, through the power of the Holy Spirit, leading you to confess your sins. And by that same power, pursue the righteousness of the kingdom. See, to live in such a way that we can testify to others through word and through deed that this is the God that we believe in. And then we can invite them to come out of the darkness and into the light where true life can be found. Brothers and sisters, this is why he left us here. How are we supposed to interact with a world that's hostile to the gospel in many places, in all places, it's hostile to the gospel and in many places? 
Just the sound of our radio will bring in the soldiers. How am I supposed to react when there's persecution? Jesus answered, just turn up the volume. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, easier said than done. Summary of the entire Sermon on the Mount, easier said than done. Lord, we know that by your grace and your mercy, you bring us to our breaking point where we no longer can be self-righteous. Lord, I pray that you would be doing that even now in the hearts of every single person, myself included, in this room. That our contempt for you, our King, would be shattered into a million pieces, never to be reconstructed again. That others that are in the periphery would see that something different has happened here. Lord, I pray for an awakening for all of us. That we could fall on our faces before you, confessing everything that we're holding back. Others, people in the world, people on the edge of this congregation would see what's happened to these people. And desire the same thing. That when they draw near, we feel the warmth of the fire of your holiness. They would hear the worship of your kingdom. They would hear loud and clearly your words as they echo in the room. Pray, Lord, that you would reverberate our souls so that we cannot keep quiet about what we have seen and heard. Lord, I pray for every single person in this room, new Christian all the way to the veterans, every single person would have hearts that are turned in full submission to you. Only you can create that kind of congregation here. We can't manufacture it. Lord, only you can do that. So we earnestly pray for it. 
all the pomp and the circumstance and the ceremony and everything that we think is important can all be done away with. I don't care. Pray that what we're left with is genuine, heartfelt worship. In Jesus' name, amen.